The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. Use of 1 John 1.9 is... Always necessary to recover fellowship, filling with the Holy Spirit. So we start with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the option to confess your sins if necessary. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege, the freedom in this nation to study your word, that we have such a fantastic heritage of doctrine in this nation of so many great believers. And yet, Father, we live in a time when our freedoms are indeed threatened. So we pray that you would uh, give our leaders wisdom, give those in command of military wisdom, skill, as they plan and execute their plans. We pray for courage for our president. We pray for continued unity among the national leaders that they might truly understand the, uh, the dimensions of this assault and not be swayed by those in our country who are uh, too timid, too cowardly to properly respond. Father, we pray for believers that they would understand what the real issues are and that you would use this time of national crisis to get the attention of Unbelievers who need salvation and believers who need to get their focus back on right priorities of Bible doctrine. Father, we continue to pray that you would challenge us as we study your word, as we continue our advance to spiritual maturity, that we might realize that is the goal that we are. While we accomplish many things on earth, that is the reason we are here, is to glorify you in the angelic conflict. Now, Father, as we continue our study of the angelic conflict, Help us to understand these issues and apply them to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue this morning with our study on the angelic conflict as the background for understanding what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, 14 and following. That is, those verses are clearly couched in, in the terminology of spiritual warfare. So we began a study of spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict 
which began in eternity past as the highest of all God's creatures, Lucifer, fell into sin and arrogance, wanted to be like God, and led one-third of the angels in rebellion against him. In the preceding weeks, we've studied the fall of Satan. We've studied about the demons, who they are. We've studied the different groups of demons, those that are operational today and those that are not operational today. Last time, we began to look at the five attacks of demonism in human history. Let me summarize these five attacks, and then we'll continue to deal with each one on an individual basis. The first is the genetic attack or assault on the human race uh, by the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, in Genesis chapter 6. These were demons who were able to transform their uh, bodies of light, their uh, immaterial bodies, into human bodies so that they could procreate with... Uh, human beings and were able to uh, distort the genetic purity of the human race. Now, the reason that's necessary is that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises to uh, Eve that it would be the seed of the woman that defeats Satan. And that seed of the woman then means that the Savior had to be true humanity and pure humanity in order to go to the cross as our substitute. The cross would be approximately 4,000 years from the first pronouncement of that event in Genesis 3.15. So Satan decides in Genesis chapter 6 to destroy the genetic purity of the human race and thereby making it impossible to have a Savior who would be true humanity. The second great attack in human history involves the assault of demon possession. The assault of demon possession, and we began to look at that last time by looking at the one episode, that of the Gadarene uh, demoniac. The third great assault is that of demon influence. This will be really the last one we look at because it uh, pertains specifically to what we will discuss in 1 John 2.15 under the category of worldliness, worldly thinking, the idea of the cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. The fourth attack in human history has to do with angelic or demonic assaults during the tribulation. And then fifth, the Gog and Magog uh, revolution in Revelation chapter 20. After Satan is released at the end of the millennium, he will lead a revolution against the reign of Christ. There will be a number of people who have rejected Christ's reign during the millennium. They have rejected the gospel, proving that even in perfect environment, man still has a problem with negative volition. It demonstrates that the problem isn't environment. The problem isn't uh, anything else other than man's own sinful choices and man's own negative volition. So Satan is going to lead a host of 
uh, rebellious humans against Christ during the uh, Gog and Magog revolution, and they are immediately destroyed by fire from heaven from God. So these are the five attacks in human history, and we began our study last time by looking at demon possession. Now, there are three key terms in the New Testament for demon possession. And the reason I'm spending some time on this is because there is so much confusion about this today. And for approximately 12 or 15 years, there have been certain people and certain uh, elements in Christianity that have uh, completely distorted what the Bible teaches about angels and demons and spiritual warfare so that spiritual warfare is couched almost exclusively in terms of combat with demons. And that spiritual warfare has to do somehow with, with uh, specifically with demons. And the whole concept of spiritual warfare in the Scripture is a metaphor of the battle in the spiritual life against three enemies. The world, the flesh, which is the sin nature, and Satan. And so by reducing the battle to focusing on one of those elements, then the other two are ignored, the world and the flesh, and you end up saying, it's not really my fault, it's the devil who made me do it. And you end up with different groups who teach that the reason Christians have problems with certain sins and failure in their life is because they have some kind of demon plaguing them. And, of course, the solution then is exorcism or deliverance. And there are these huge services and you know, we're fortunate we don't get some of those crazy television stations here, so we're not subjected to that. But it leaks through here and there anyway, where you see uh, some of these people having these huge services where they're casting demons out of people or alleging to. So we need to take some time to look at what the Bible teaches about these things and not about uh, what man's experience teaches. So these three key terms are important for understanding what the Bible teaches. And the first phrase is one we saw last time in our study in um, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, so turn with me there, and we'll look at the Mark account of the Gadarene demoniac. The Mark account and takes place in Gerasa, the Gerasenes. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes, and when he had come out of the boat, that is Jesus, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit. And here you have the preposition in plus the dative form of akathartos pneuma. A-K-A- T-H-A-R-T-O-S, Numa, P-N-E-U-M-A. This alpha here is the negative. Cathartos is the noun related to katharizo for cleansing, purification. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, purify us from all wrongdoing. In here, the preposition in indicates... Uh, can indicate association, but more than likely it is associated here with the dative of, of uh, possession of thing possessed. Really, the dative of the thing possessed. Now that seems to be uh, might be confusing here because 
uh, it's the demon that's possessing the individual, but this is a grammatical tag, and so it's a dative plus the thing possessed. And what this denotes is that when the noun in the dative denotes the thing which someone has or possesses, that something that they have. So the dative here is the akathartos pneuma, and the individual possesses or has this. This is the key word and is comparable to the Greek verb echo, which means E-C-H-O, which means to have, to have or to hold or to possess. And so what we have here is that this individual has, and it should be translated with, he comes with an unclean spirit. Now the parallel to this is the second phrase, the second phrase that is used for demon possession in the scriptures is the term echo daimonion. E-C-H-O D-A-I-M-O-N-I-O-N. Now, here's the verb, echo, to have. See, that's where we get the idea of possession, of having something with him. So that's why the, the clue is the dative of a thing possessed, what someone has with them, and uh, has is the same word. It's a form of the English word to have, and that reflects that verb that's used in the second phrase for demon possession, echo daimonion. And then the third phrase, which is the most significant, is the verb daimonizomai. D-A-I-M-O-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Now, this is in a participial form. It's a present participle. It's a present passive participle, and the passive voice indicates that the subject is acted upon by something else. And the problem with this is people think, well, this simply means to be acted on or acted upon by a demon. And so you have people writing books that say there's no such thing as demon possession in the Scriptures. Possession means to own. We're owned by Christ. This is totally, and their argument is that this is totally uh, a theologically made-up concept. And that's just wrong. The way you study the Scriptures and the way you develop understanding of what a word means is by how a word is used. Incidentally, that's what Webster's does in his dictionary or Collins or any of the other people who write dictionaries. A dictionary is not an absolute that tells you what words mean. A dictionary is written by a lexicographer. A lexicographer is somebody who studies words. And what a lexicographer does is he goes out and he analyzes how words are used in literature and in the spoken media. And then he, de- he derives from that study of how the words are used, what the various meanings are that are assigned to that word. So that what determines what a me- word means ultimately 
is word usage, not what the dictionary says. That's why the dictionary changes from decade to decade. It's because the language changes, shifts, evolves from decade to decade. Word takes, words take on new meanings and new nuances. And so the, the writers of the dictionary are always going to be kept in business because they have to go in and revise and update the dictionaries every ten years or so and add new words and change, add new meanings and things like that. So that a word is determined not by its etymology, that means its history, or its uh, grammatical form. It's, you can't say, well, because it's a present passive participle, it means to be acted upon by a demon. You have to go into a passage and passages and see how it's used. And we studied this last time, and we saw that in every single one of these passages, and I just focused on, on the one episode of the uh, Gadarene demoniac here, in Mark chapter 5 and also in, uh, in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, 26 to 27 and Matthew 8, 28 to 34. In those passages, we see that this word is always accompanied by the Greek words ex, erikomai, ex, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. The X is a prefix from the preposition meaning out of. Or ace, erikomai, which means uh, the preposition for going into. And when Jesus cast out the demon, then the scripture uses the phrase, the verb, ekbalo, E-K-B-A-L-L-O, and ek means out of. So you have these prepositions prefixed to the verbs that indicate action into and out of. And so when Jesus cast out Ekbalo, the demon from the, uh, this Gadarene demoniac, he tells it to go into, Ace Erkamai, go into the pigs, and he go, comes out of the man, Ex Erkamai, and went into the pigs. So that tells us, then that diamondizomai means to have a demon dwelling inside the body of someone, where that person is con- their their body is controlled by a demon. That somehow the operation where the soul, we'll put the soul here, the square is going to represent the um, human body. That somehow the control of the soul over the body is abrogated. Now, there's no spirit here because this is an unbeliever. Demon possession is only for unbelievers. That somehow the direct control of the soul over the human body is abrogated and taken over by a demon. But that doesn't mean that the soul is no longer there. That individual soul is still there with self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. And that's still there, but it is quiescent. It's not, it's not active, but the person is still there so that they can exercise positive volition to the gospel if somebody presents the gospel to that individual while they are demon-possessed. And if they respond positively, then the demon will be evicted and they will be delivered from that demon possession. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at that in a little more detail in a minute. So in terms of the key, key nomenclature for demon possession, there are three terms, and they indicate that somebody has a demon. Somebody possesses a demon, or a demon is inside them. So demon possession is defined as a demon taking up residence and control over a person's body. 
Second point is that since demon possession is not a natural phenomenon, it can't be solved with medication, incantations, ritual, or religion. It can't be solved by medication, incantations, ritual, or religion. Now, what you find often is the liberals come along and they deny the reality of supernatural events. They deny the existence of a personal Satan. They deny the existence of personal demons. And so they say that, well, this was just the way those people talked about mental illness, and that's all this was, was just people who were uh, psychotic or neurotic, and so Jesus, uh, Jesus healed them of their mental illness, and that is completely false. These, the Bible uh, recognizes mental illness as a separate category. It is distinct from demonism, um, demon possession in the Bible. So demon possession is not a natural phenomenon. It can't be solved by medication incantations, ritual, or religion. Now, there are three options. There are three possible ways in which a person can be delivered from demon possession. And let's turn to see this in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. This represents the um, the point when Jesus comes to a head-to-head confrontation over this with the uh, Pharisees. Matthew 12:22. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man. Verse 22. There was brought to him a demon-possessed man, that's Diamonizomai, who was blind and dumb. And this tells us that as a result of demon possession, he was blind and he could not speak. Dumb does not mean he had a low IQ. It means he didn't have the ability to speak. And that was a result of the demon possession. So this is not a blindness due to a physical factor. This is not something that can be cured by surgery or medication. But the same terminology of healing is used of this, that he healed him. So healing, or the Greek verb hiaomai, is merely a general verb related to deliverance and to solving the problem. He healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Now, the fact that this involved casting out the demon becomes clear from the next verse. In verse 23, everyone is amazed. The multitudes were astounded and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, they were... um, Responding to this because they recognized that the Old Testament taught that the one of the signs of the Messiah would be physical healing and deliverance. So let's skip ahead here to a couple of verses on the overhead. Jeremiah 33, 6 is a messianic prophecy. Behold, I, meaning God, will bring to it, that is the nation, health and healing, and I will heal them. And I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. So this is a messianic prophecy that God would deliver the nation and bring health and healing. So the fact that that Jesus came and that he was healing people of their physical diseases, as well as healing them of these spiritual maladies related to demon possession, was a sign. It signified something. It pointed to something that he was who he claimed to be, and that is the Messiah promised 
in the Old Testament. Another passage that relates to this is in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, where we read, Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. So here we see clearly that there were certain objective signs and evidences spoken of in the Old Testament that the people were to look for, and when they saw those things, then they would know that the Messiah was in their presence. So when we look at Matthew, their response in Matthew 12:23, we see that they recognized this. All the multitudes were amazed and began to say, "This man can't be the son of David, can he?" The other word, another, and the way it's phrased is they are affirming that this must be the son of David. But in contrast, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are going to dispute this. They say, "No." Uh, this man casts out demons. And there we have our verb, ekbalo. It is not the verb ex or kizo, which is where we get our word exorcism. Exorcism is not a solid or a sound spiritual practice. Ex or kizo or exorcism was never practiced by Jesus and the disciples or later the apostles. They cast out demons. They did not exorcise Demons, that's E-X-O-R, not E-X-E-R. They weren't having a demonic uh, aerobics class. I just wanted to see if anybody was still awake this morning. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So they are blaming, they are saying that he does this by the power of Satan. Beelzebul had become a title for Satan at this time in uh, Jewish history. So they are saying that he does it by the power of Beelzebul. And this would be true that Satan can personally intervene for the purpose of distracting and confusing people. He can possess somebody who's an unbeliever, and you have demon possession, and somebody who's a fraud, somebody who's a false teacher, somebody who's a faker comes along and says, uh, okay, I'm going to cast a demon out of this person, and then Satan cooperates because then it looks as if this guy legitimately has the power and the uh, ability to cast out demons. I have talked to people who have been in, uh, in India, missionaries who have been in India, and they have said that it is very common for these uh, religious leaders among the Hindu to cast demons out of those who are demon-possessed. And it's no different from some of the charlatans that do it under the guise of Christianity today. It's the same kind of uh, lengthy process and very similar methodology that is not the same as that which is practiced by Jesus and the disciples in the New Testament. So Satan can get involved in this just to distract and confuse people. Incidentally, some of you I know have, uh, this relates to this, we were talking about it during the break, have seen some of this, uh, oh, there's so much crazy stuff that floats around the Internet sometimes, but this prophecy that Nostradamus allegedly prophesied that uh, at the turn of the millennium that the city of York would uh, see some fireball and it would start the uh, final war or the third great world war or something like that and see if there's any legitimacy at all to that. And I question that because it's come across my email two or three times in different verbiage. So I kind of question whether it's accurately there or not. But even if it is... You know, Satan is the master counterfeiter, and throughout the centuries he has people make these uh, prophetic announcements, and then he tries to fulfill them later on in order to grant 
uh, a form of legitimacy to these false prophecies. So just because a prophet comes along and claims to, to accurately predict something, uh, don't believe them. That was the test of Deuteronomy 18, is that is a prophet had to be correct 100% of the time in every detail. Other than, if he's not, he was to be, uh, he was to be executed because, and not to be believed in anything that he said. So no one should pay any attention to any of this nonsense about Nostradamus. Just throw it away and ignore it. It is not even worthy of discussion. So Satan gets involved in order to deceive and distract uh, believers and unbelievers. Second way in which demon possession is resolved is through direct divine intervention. Through direct divine intervention, and this is what happens in the case of the Gadarene demoniac in Mark 5.8, Jesus commands the demon to depart, and the demon departs. So you have direct divine intervention at the time of Christ and also through the apostles, because the apostles, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the signs and wonders that the apostles performed, just like the signs and wonders Jesus performed, was their credentials. That was their calling card that demonstrated that they had, they were who they claimed to be and that what they taught came from God. So that is direct divine intervention. It is not the apostles who were directly casting out the demons. They were doing it through a secondary or delegated power from God, but God is the one who acts to uh, eject the demon from the individual. And then the third way in which a demon, by which a demon is uh, removed from an individual is by faith alone in Christ alone. And this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. So turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, because this is foundational to understanding the next point, which is why Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Faith alone in Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 3.16, as well as 1 Corinthians 6.19, inform us that as believers we are at the temple of God and that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in us. And 1 John tells us in 1 John 2, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So what happens is at the instant of faith alone, God the Holy Spirit is going to create in us a human spirit, and that is known as regeneration, and then the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside the body, and he sanctif- at that point he sanctifies the body, and that means it is set apart as a temple of God. It is set apart as a temple, as a dwelling place for God, and it is at that point that God the Father and... God the Son take up residence in this new temple. Remember in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ is in us. Jesus said to the apostles in John 15, I in you and you in me. Jesus Christ is in us. And so we not only have the presence of God the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of God the Father and God the Son, and so where they dwell, no demon can dwell. So if there's any demon there beforehand, that demon is instantly ejected and cannot return and cannot take up a residence there. 
So that is the first reason from a clear statement of Scripture that the believer is the temple of God. The believer's physical body is now the temple of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And so a demon cannot take up residence there. Second reason is the silence of Scripture. So the first reason is the clear statement of Scripture. And the second reason is the silence from Scripture. Now, someone might say, well, you can't argue for anything from silence. Well, yes, you can you can argue from silence, and there's one legitimate argument from silence, and um, I'll show it to you. To do that, let's turn to Second Peter, chapter one, verse three. Second Peter, chapter one, verse three. Now, an argument from silence. What is an argument from silence? An argument from silence is trying to de- derive a conclusion when nothing is said about something, and saying, "Well, because the Bible doesn't say anything about." Uh, some subject, therefore, uh, it must be okay to participate in that. The Bible, some people might say, the Bible really never, uh, never addresses uh, marijuana or uh, drugs, therefore, how in the world can you say it's wrong? Well, the Bible does, and we would argue with that, but we would show why. But just because it doesn't mention something per se doesn't mean it's legitimate or not. You can't argue from silence. Well, you, you, there is a way, though, in which an argument for si- from silence does work, and I'm going to show it to you. Second Peter chapter one verse three makes the, one of the greatest claims for sc- the sufficiency of Scripture anywhere in the New Testament. We read, seeing that His divine power, that is the omnipotence of God, has granted to us that's grace. He has freely given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not some things, not most things, but everything pertaining to life and godliness. And the Greek word for godliness here is eusebeia, which relates to the spiritual life. Godliness is one of those fuzzy spiritual terms that people talk about. Oh, he has such a godly life. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it means, if you break it down etymologically in the English, anything like like the word godly comes from the old English godlike. You're living like God or you're experiencing or you're exhibiting the character of God. That would be the character of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is what we call basically living the spiritual life, where you're walking by means of the Spirit and He's producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So this verse says that God has given to us everything we need to know about life and the spiritual life. Now that's a profound claim. Everything we need to know about life and the spiritual life. Now let me suggest to you that if, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you could be invaded by a demon, that's an if as a first-class debater's condition, if, and we're going to assume it's true, that you could be invaded by a demon as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you think that that would have something to do with your spiritual life? At the very least, that would have something to do with your spiritual life. That would be the most horrible thing the most tragic thing, the most incredible attack any individual believer could possibly imagine. That would be to your spiritual life and to my spiritual life. If I could be, my body could be invaded by a demon, that would be a million times worse than what happened on September 11th, spiritually speaking. Because we would be invaded by this evil force that would completely take over our body. That has something to do with our spiritual life, doesn't it? And yet the Bible says it claims to tell us everything we need to know about the spiritual life. Now, where in the epistles, Romans through Jude, 
the epistles of the New Testament are written to the church-age believer to tell the church-age believer how to live in this dispensation. It is in the epistles from Romans to Jude that the believer is told what the problems are that we're going to face and how to resolve those problems and how to handle them. And all kinds of things are addressed there. All kinds of sins are addressed there from bitterness and malice to overt sins. All kinds of sins are addressed there. All sorts of problems are addressed there. Every issue in life is addressed there. But where? Tell me one place from Romans to the end of Jude that mentions anything about a believer being demon-possessed. It's not there. Not there at all. It is, the absence, the silence of Scripture is deafening on this subject. The fact that the Scripture doesn't even mention it indicates that it's not an issue. If the Bible claims to tell us everything we need to know about a subject and something isn't mentioned, then we don't need to know about it because it's not relevant. That's the argument from silence. Because it's silence, it's not an issue. Not only that, but if you go through the epistles to the church from Romans chapter 1 to the end of Jude, you can't find one mention not only of demon possession, but of deliverance from demon possession. Not one mention. If this is the problem that deliverance ministers seem to think it is, that the reason you have a problem with anger is you've got a spirit of anger, some demon of anger that's bothering you, the reason you have problems with lust is because you have uh, some problem with some demon of lust that's plaguing you, uh, the reason you uh, uh, can't get it together in the spiritual life is because you used to play with tarot cards with, before you were saved, and now, now some demon's got a, a stronghold in your life and all the other uh, garbage they come up with. Why is it that the Bible doesn't say anything about how to get delivered from that demon? It's totally silent. Once again, the silence of Scripture is deafening. If this is an issue and it needs to be solved, then there's no mention of the solution. The Bible claims to tell us everything we need to know about the subject, and here it doesn't even address the subject. Why? Because it's not relevant. It's not a problem. The silence of Scripture is deafening. Now, the problem is that we live in an age when people want to base their theology on anecdotes and experience and not on exegesis. Let me say that again. People today want to build their theology and their interpretation of the Bible on the basis of anecdotes and experience and not on the basis of the Scriptures. And let me give you an example. One of the best books ever written on the subject of demonology was written by Merrill Unger, who was a professor of Old Testament at Dallas Seminary. And Dr. Unger wrote a book in the early 50s called Biblical Demonology. And in Biblical Demonology, he did an excellent job of exegeting and analyzing Scripture. Now, this goes to methodology. How you do what you do is as important as what you do. Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. You, the end never justifies the means. A wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong, and a wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. And so methodology, is, and, and you, know, you sit there and you think, well that, well, that makes sense. I can't tell you how many times I used to get in arguments in seminary with guys who didn't understand that. That methodology, and it always came up when it came to Christian ed, you know, how to teach people in the church, because they, 
what happens, that one of the biggest problems in Christianity is that we educate somebody in seminary and then, okay, we're going to, this guy's interested in the education program of the local church, how to teach kids, how to teach adults. So now they go over to some secular university to get their Ph.D. in education. Well, the whole education philosophy at this other school, whether it's University of Texas or North Texas or Harvard or Yale or wherever it is, is that those people in education have a concept of what makes man man, how man learns, that is built on a totally experiential model and a totally human viewpoint model of man and man's nature. And so they go and they spend four years in a Ph.D. program sucking up human viewpoint, and then they come back into the church and they bring their human viewpoint concept of education back to, to the seminary, and now they're teaching a baptized version of human viewpoint education philosophy in, 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 in the seminary. And this is exactly what happened historically. There were, there were two sisters... I can't remember their names right now, who were teaching at Wheaton back in the late 40s and uh, early 50s. And they went to Princeton and got their PhDs in education. And they went back to Wheaton. And I had to read their books when I was in seminary for a Christian education class. And they basically uh, brought in all of the secular humanist view of education, education philosophy and methodology and they brought that into Christianity. And it screwed up Sunday school programs and Sunday school curriculums for the last 50 years. And it's basically uh, tried to teach Christianity in, in, a, in a way that is joined with secular humanism, with human viewpoints. So you have human viewpoint dressed up in Christian clothes. And that's what be, what's being taught. And the methodology of teaching that is adopted in most in, in, in most uh, education systems. So you go to most Sunday schools and everybody sits around and they were supposed to have read their little Sunday school quarterly during the week. Nobody did. And so the Sunday school teacher says, well, Bill, would you stand up and read the verse and then tell us what you think it means? And so everybody comes together and they share their ignorance rather than the teacher of the class being the one who goes and studies and teaches and someone who is gifted with the spiritual gift of teaching and actually studies and teaches what the passage says rather than everybody sharing their ignorance of what, in their opinion, this passage teaches when nobody has a clue. And that's just one way in which this kind of indoctrination takes place when you forget that how you do something is as important as what you do. And so this always comes down to the basic issue of how, how do we know what we know? What's our authority? How, when we say, I know that's true, on what basis? Well, there are four systems of learning. The first is rationalism. Rationalism is derived from pure reason as the methodology. But it still functions on faith. Because the object of faith here is on human, autonomous, Reason, where reason operates independently from the authority of God. And this is exemplified historically in the thinking of Rene Descartes and his principle, I think, therefore I am. And in Cartesian rationalism, you, you ignored all sense data, all experience data, and you're trying to figure out what the ultimate principle in the universe is. And, well, maybe God's just deceiving me 
maybe this is all just a great illusion of, of, uh, of God's and it's just some big hoax. How do I know that I see anything? Maybe God's just making me think I see things. Y'all don't exist. I just think you do. God's just perpetuating this big hoax. How can I know anything exists? That's his question. And ultimately it came down to the fact, well, I think because I have self-consciousness and I'm thinking, therefore, I must exist. So his starting point is because I know that I exist, well, then maybe I can reason to the existence of other things. So you're starting with first principles of reason alone, but the hidden assumption is that I think that, that human reason operating on its own, apart from any external input from God, can solve the problems of the universe and can answer the fundamental questions of is there a God, what is right and wrong, is there an eternity, and how do I spend eternity with God? You know, incidentally, the questions that, that philosophy tries to answer are the same questions that theology tries to answer. But philosophy tries to answer it apart from revelation. So it's human autonomous reason. And so then what happens in its worst form is this independent reason comes back to judge the Scriptures. And you find under, under um, rationalistic legalism, you see statements in Scripture where Jesus walked on the water and they say, Oh, we know that can't happen. That violates the laws of physics. It just looked like he walked on. There's really a sandbar there. Or those people weren't demon-possessed. Demons don't exist. You know, they were just mentally ill. See, they're using conclusions from independent reason to judge the Scriptures and to interpret the Scriptures. Then you come along and you have experience, or the technical term is empiricism. In empiricism, you say that ultimate truth it comes not from reason, but sense data. What you hear, what you see, what you touch, what you, what you feel, that you sense data. And that's the methodology of, uh, of modern science. This is the methodology of the, class, uh, of, the, of the laboratory. What you can repeatedly demonstrate in the laboratory, that's how you know truth, from observation data. Now, once again, you've got faith hiding away, lurking in the shadow. See, they want you to think, oh, I'm a man of science, I'm not a man of faith. I won't use the word, I'll, I'll use a Greek word for that, scubala. <laughs> that, that's what you scoop up in the, in the horse barn. See, faith is always hiding and lurking in the background. Faith here doesn't have... Autonomous human reason, but it has autonomous experience. These are your anecdotes. You know, the fact that I've gone out and I've had this experience, and then based on that experience, I'm going to now interpret the Word of God. So here's the Word down here, and just like reason reinterpreted the Scriptures, now experience is going to reinterpret the Scriptures. And you see a classic illustration of this in the, way, in, in the way Darwin handled his observational data in the Galapagos. How did he do it? He goes out and he says, okay, I observed this, I observed this, and he collects all this data. And, he, and then he comes back and he, he formulates a conclusion. Well, because there's similarities in various species, they must be related. So he's starting off with, with all these independent facts but he's interpreting, he's bringing something, he's already made certain assumptions. Those aren't brute facts sitting out there. 
he's already interpreted, he's already excluded something before he looked at the brute facts. He excluded what the Bible said. That can't be. I'm not going to take that into account. He, immediately, he didn't look at all the facts. He only looked at a few facts. And he excluded any facts of revelation. So he doesn't come objectively. Now, be prepared. Uh, PBS, which is one of the greatest promoters of human viewpoint secular, secularism, is going to have a series starting tomorrow night, I believe, on evolution. To be forewarned. Now, this is what, what happens. The basic methodology is that the scientist is not allowed to look at all the data. See, science is supposed to say, I'm going to evaluate all the data and then draw conclusions. But they can't evaluate all the data. Any data from the Bible is automatically excluded because if we take the Bible, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be revelation. So we have to exclude that. So this is why it's independent, autonomous human experience. And so the geologist goes out and he says, well, I find this fossil here, and I find this fossil here, and that fossil there, and they all seem to be in certain strata. And so I'm going to reach certain conclusions, and I'm going to evaluate my experience with these fossils in such a way as to say that they tell us that the earth is millions of years old. Okay, now that's not any different from this so-called deliverance minister who believes Christians can be demon-possessed because he had this experience with this person who claimed to be a Christian and claimed to be demon-possessed. And, of course, I can't see a demon. I don't know when I'm being, when I'm being deceived. I don't know enough about this guy to know that he may, not, he may be just simply psychotic. I don't know all the facts. I can't see all the, I'm not omniscient. But he's assuming that he's smart enough, brilliant enough, and observant enough, and intelligent enough not to be duped, that he's looking at the fact, like, like one professor at Moody Bible Institute says, I've got over 400 case studies in my files of Christians who are demon-possessed. Therefore, Christians can be demon-possessed. See, he's not, his methodology is no different from the methodology of the evolutionist who comes along and says, well, I've got 400 fossils here, and they all suggest X. See, what's happened is that they've excluded the Bible. They started with experience. They didn't start with revelation. Now, the third view, why people think they come to know truth, is through intuition. Intuition. I just know it. Just because I, I've had this experience, and it, it, it seems so real to me, so overwhelming to me, that I know it must be what I think it is. And so somebody comes in and they're bouncing off the walls and they're you know, throwing up green pea soup or you know, sputtering uh, obscenities and they immediately say, oh, this must be, no, no, no Christian could act this way or, or they'll say this must be, this guy claims to be a Christian so it must be a demon and they don't know if the person trusted Christ as their Savior or did something stupid like invite Jesus into their heart which isn't what the Bible says is necessary for salvation. They don't know that maybe this guy's not saved at all. And maybe he's just psychotic. Maybe he has Tourette syndrome. They don't have enough data. And so they're starting with their experience. And the only way to get to truth is revelation. What does the Bible say? See, this is what Unger did. He started with the Bible, and he started with the data of the Scriptures and exegesis, and he drew a conclusion, and the conclusion was Christians cannot be demon-possessed. But then you know what happened? He got dozens of letters from missionaries out on the mission field 
in some Stone Age society saying, well, I know so-and-so was a believer because they said they trusted Christ. Of course, how do you know that they were trusting Christ as one other God of the other many gods they were trusting? Um, and they claim to be a Christian and they're demon-possessed, and I know it was demon-possession, but how do you know it was demon-possession? What makes you smart enough to figure out what's going on in the spiritual realm? We can't see it. None of us can see into the spiritual We don't have a clue. All we can do is go by what God tells us is taking place in the spiritual realm and then leave the rest in his hands. And so Unger got dozens and dozens of letters from all these missionaries out on the mission field with all of their experiences. And on the basis of their experiences, he reinterprets the Bible. See, And then we came out with, a, with another book called What Demons Can Do to, Christian, to Believers. And... He now takes the position, or he then took the he's dead now, passed away about ten years ago. Uh, he then took the position that um, Christians could be demon-possessed. But he didn't get that from studying the Scriptures. Everybody I have talked to who's done a study of the Scriptures, divorced from all these anecdotes and experiences, comes up with the same conclusion. Christians can't be demon-possessed. But then all of a sudden people come up with all of these experiences. Well, see, the question isn't to reevaluate the Bible, but let's reevaluate our experience. We don't have enough data to accurately interpret our experience. And the Bible is to give us that information. So that doesn't mean I can explain everything. I don't have to explain everything. You don't have to explain everything. I don't have all the data, so how can I give, a de- give an accurate explanation of no matter how strange and bizarre the behavior may, might be? I don't have all the data, and frankly, neither does any other human being. And anybody who claims they do know enough to reach solid conclusions on this is so filled with arrogance that it's not even worth discussing with them. So... Why can't Christians be demon-possessed? First of all, the clear statement of Scripture that they're now a temple of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the silence of Scripture when it claims to tell us everything we need to know about the spiritual life says a lot. The fact that we're neither warned nor told how to be delivered from this tells us that it's not a problem. And then third, all of the arguments for demon possession are based on experience and not simple exegesis of the Scriptures. Now, what can demons do to men? What can demons do to men? Well, they can cause physical disease. We've seen this in various passages. For example, in Matthew 9.33, after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled. So he can create an inability to speak. Matthew 17:18 Jesus rebuked him the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once so there is physical disease associated with demon possession Luke 4:35 Jesus rebuked him and said be quiet and come out of him when the demon had thrown him down so the demon can cause the body to be thrown down thrown into fire cause physical harm but when the demon is removed that's no longer a problem um, Luke 4.41 The demons also were coming out of many Jesus healed many of demon possession Crying out and saying You are the Son of God And rebuking them He would not allow them to speak Because they knew Him to be the Christ So there were many who were demon possessed And Jesus cast out demons And the result was that these manifestations Of demon possession uh, 
disappear. Now, what are the avenues to demon possession? How do people get involved in demon possession? Well, they can get involved in demon possession, as we saw last time, through idolatry, through false religions, because it is the demons that underlie false religions, whether it is a, a physical idol, such as those who worship Baal during the Old Testament, or whether it's a more abstract idolatry, like those who just simply worship false gods that are not represented. Therefore, that would apply to any religious system that had gods or goddesses or a god, like Allah or the god of the Mormons. Those are all false gods that are, that are developed by demons, and anybody who worships them can become um, open to demonism. Also, astrology, for example, those who get involved in any kind of fortune telling, uh, that's prohibited in Leviticus 19.26. And in Deuteronomy 18.10, people play around with this. When they get in trouble in life, they want to... It's so easy now. All you have to do is call up, uh, you know, Sister Cleo on the telephone and, or somebody else that's advertising their 1-800 and find out your future number. And uh, you can start getting involved in, in uh, fortune-telling and, and eventually get distracted from doctrine, get focused on finding out how to solve all your problems from some uh, psycho shaman on television, and then you're in trouble. Also, mysticism, because mysticism establishes a false authority. That false authority of mysticism is you start listening to some inner voice, and who knows whose inner voice that could be. And um, trying to tell the fortune through through our, our calling up the dead through necromancy. And there's a tremendous example of necromancy. I'll close with that in 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul is in trouble. See, this is usually what drives people to the, um, the, the fortune tellers is because they, um, they're in some sort of personal crisis or adversity and they have rejected doctrine. So they want somebody to tell them that everything is going to be okay. So, and that's why you always seem to hear the same stuff come out from the tarot card readers and the psychics and everybody else. They figure, you know, 90% of the people who are calling in are calling in because they either have problems with love or money. So it's real easy for them to start uh, asking the right kinds of questions. And, and, you know, if they ask the right kind of question, immediately, oh, well, they must know what's wrong. They figured it out. Well, no, they just play the numbers well. Now, this is what happened with Saul. So Saul, Samuel's been dead for a while, and, and the Urim and Thummim are no longer responding to Saul's questions because of his carnality. And Saul, back when he was a believer operating on positive volition, had removed all the mediums and spiritists, that is, all the, all the tarot card readers and psychics and witches and everybody else were removed from from the land, so he had to go into enemy territory, territory still controlled by the Philistines, and so he went to Endor, and uh, because God would not respond to him, that's in verse six. So he disguises himself in verse eight and puts on uh, puts on beggar's clothes so that he can go to uh, the witch and she the witch of Endor, so she will not know what the problem is or who he is, and she goes to the her by night so nobody can see him. And says, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul's done. So she suspects a trap. 
Now he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? And Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, notice the hypocrisy here. He's going to swear by the Lord while he's violating the Mosaic law. It's typical of any believer that's out of, out of fellowship. We use God for our own ends. That's what happens. And we use Him for our own ends positively to justify behavior, and we also use it negatively. How do we do that? Think about how many people are blaming God because they lost somebody in the, uh, in the events of, of uh, September 11th. They'll respond in anger. See, suffering is designed by God to be the great wake-up call to our need for a relationship with Him. And people will either respond positively or they'll react and they'll say, say, they'll blame it on God. And this is what happens in negative volition. We use God and manipulate Him for our own own agenda, either to justify what we're doing or to, to show that God really doesn't care or doesn't exist. So Saul tells her to bring up Samuel. And what nor- in verse 11, what normally happens in this kind of scenario was that the woman had a had an engostromuthos demon, and that is the Greek word. It's not used in the New Testament, but it's used in the Septuagint. It refers to a ventriloquist demon. And what would happen is, in this kind of situation, the medium, the voice would come out of the ground. And so she would call up somebody. You would go there and say, oh, you know, my wife died or my boyfriend died. And you'll bring him back from the dead so I can talk to him. And they would hear this voice coming out of the ground, and it was this demon who is speaking out of the ground. And so that's what she expects, but for the first time in her life, she gets a big surprise, and somebody actually shows up on the scene. And it is Samuel, and as soon as this happens, when the woman saw Samuel, she screams. That's what that means, a pathetic translation there. She screams with a loud voice and immediately knows this, this isn't normal. Because as soon as she saw Samuel, she said, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. I mean, she's... She, click to what was actually going on very quickly because this was not the normal procedure. And so the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? Because he couldn't see it, but she could. And I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And what is his form? And so she describes Samuel. And this tells us exactly what, what is going on. This is the only time in history anybody ever was able to speak to the dead. And it also tells us that Saul was saved because you always find somebody. Saul was such a disobedient, carnal believer, he couldn't have been saved. No, he was saved. How do you know it? Go to this passage. Samuel says, I'm going to see you before the day's out. Now, if Saul wasn't a believer, he couldn't have said that. So this is just one example of many of how, uh, you know, the, the spiritists and mediums are forbidden. And they are anybody who gets involved with them uh, opens their soul to demonism. And anybody who gets involved in excessive carnality and excessive sinfulness opens themselves to any form of demonism simply because that's the modus operandi of, the, of demons. When you're living in carnality, carnal thinking is tantamount to demonism. And that's why in James 3, 13 through 15, it says, But this thinking, that is the thinking of arrogance, is earthly, demonic, and natural. It's a, Arrogance is demonic. You're thinking like a demon when you're operating on carnality. Now, that covers for us what demons can do to men and the deli- how to be delivered from um, 
uh, demon possession if you're an unbeliever. And next time, we are going to look at the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 and how the believer is protected from demon influence. And then, after that, we'll go into a study of what demon influence is and we'll probably need to do a serious study of the kinds of false doctrines that are being promulgated today. Within the last year, we've looked at psychology as one category, so we'll probably have to come back and look at postmodernism again because it's been a while, and we've got new stuff to look at on that, so we'll have have to refresh ourselves on some of the standard worldly categories of thinking today. So that's where we're headed uh, as we go through our study of the uh, believer's victory in spiritual warfare. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to study your word and to be encouraged to realize the greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that as members of the royal family of God, members of your family, those who have been redeemed and regenerated, those who are indwelt by, by you and by the Holy Spirit and God the Son, we know that we are protected from any kind of uh, direct demon possession. But, Father, we must be warned about demon influence because that is more insidious because it affects our thinking. And we are warned against following the doctrines of demons. Father, we thank you for our salvation that victory in the angelic conflict is secured for all time because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. There he he died for every single sin in human history so that our salvation is not dependent on who we are or what we do, but our salvation is dependent upon who He is and what He did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without eternal life, unsure and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make that both sure and certain right now. That they would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that You would encourage us and challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.